This is not the media. This is hell. Real quick, just a hat tip to the Big Ten for deciding to play football this fall. I think it's a fantastic idea that now that the virus is running rampant through Big Ten campuses across the country, probably the best time to get all the students back together to enjoy some sports. As we learn about sports, the sports doesn't really care about fans, doesn't really care about players, and on the college level, it really doesn't care about students. All it really cares about is money. On today's This Is Hell, when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are definitely not all in this together. No matter how much the Trump administration insisted we were united and stay united behind Trump during the initial outbreak, a unity campaign that turned quickly into finger-pointing and divisiveness, no matter how much the media tells us we are all in this together to maintain some modicum of business as as usual, despite business as usual being what got us a pandemic in the first place, We are definitely not all in this together. The virus may connect us, but we do not all experience the pandemic in the same way, which is kind of implied when you tell us we are all in this together. Case in point, Amazon's indigenous people and the impact of COVID-19 on them with little contact with outsiders that have colonized their land for centuries. Now with extractive industries doing more damage than ever to their territory... With increased contact that brings with it now a deadly virus to a people who have no built-up immunity and absolutely no access to the personal protective equipment or medical technology needed to keep people alive who have COVID, the disease could be catastrophic. And considering the state's response to the needs of the people of the Amazon, it's not a plague that threatens their civilization. It's more than that. It's a genocide. We'll discuss how we are not all in this together when we talk in a few to Sylvia Cifuentes, who wrote the scienceandsociety.org article, Territory, Autonomy, and Rights, Indigenous Politics, and COVID-19 in the Amazon Basin. Sylvia is a doctoral candidate in the Department of Global Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap Radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, you look amazing. What's your secret? You look amazing. What's your secret? I like the way you smile while you read that. It sounds really fantastic. Much better when you're smiling. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap. Last week's winner, Tamron, said that she's not a trucker cap kind of person, so we are going to change it into another piece of merchandise that she's going to choose. So if you're not into a trucker cap, we can give you another piece of merchandise. You can check out the new gray on black. This is how truckers cap and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have it by the end of today's show because we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth this week. Jeff waits for just the right moment. Following our guest, Alex, will have more of your answers to this week's question from Mel. Again, you look amazing. What's your secret? You look amazing. What's your secret? Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. 
We're still getting caught up on our email that piled up here in the office over our one-week summer break last month. Jay emailed us saying, Hey, Chuck and Alex, I just came across the most interesting angle on QAnon I'd heard so far. Greg Stanton is an expert on genocide and draws the parallels between QAnon, conspiracy theories, and Nazi propaganda. I'd love to hear an interview with him. Check it out. Jay then sends a link to Greg's most recent article, QAnon is a Nazi Cult Rebranded, which you can find at JustSecurity.org. So I replied to Jay saying that I'd just seen Greg Stanton being interviewed on CNN, and that Greg said if you uh, take the protocols of the Elders of Zion, a Nazi forgery claiming to be written by Jewish leaders, which revealed their plot for global domination, and replace all references to Judaism with the words deep state, you get QAnon. That's how lazy QAnon and its supporters are. They just did a copy and paste on a Nazi forgery and suddenly believed they were somehow enlightened. Jay wrote back saying the direct parallel between the two groups and how the messaging of one group can be overlaid on the other is interesting, but what I find even more interesting is tracking the foundational elements of secretion violence that can sometimes lead to genocide. Basically, Conspiracy theories plus propaganda equals dehumanization, and when that gets pushed far enough, things can get really bad really fast. Jay then sends a, uh, adds a YouTube video that Greg Stanton made back in 2008 explaining the building blocks of genocide, which he strongly suggests we all check out. Jay ends with, they all sound more familiar than I'm comfortable with. We may never get to genocide in the U.S., but I think understanding the elements of play at play is important. Stay awesome, Jay. And I'm certain Jay meant we will never get to another genocide, as we still seem to be continuing, you know, the first genocide against Native Americans. But thank you, Jay, because this stuff Greg Stanton has posted is exceptional and perfect to send to anyone you know who actually believes in QAnon. Not this, this will convince many followers or many followers to change their light bulb, but at least you get the satisfaction of telling them they fell for Nazi propaganda. Rob sent us, in Rob words, a topic idea for a guest with absolutely no suggestion on whom. Hey guys, probably a frustrating email to receive in terms of suggestions. I didn't research any well-written articles or anything, but I saw some videos online of prisons in Mississippi and Alabama and their quarantine zones or whatever, just their general state, and it is absolutely abhorrent. Like, it hit me with a wave of sadness and hopelessness when I saw it. Anyway, I'd love to hear you flesh out just how awful, inhumane, and profitable it is with someone knowledgeable on the situation. That's all I got. Sorry, I'm, I'm pretty high. Rob, what little research I did shows that, yes, like most prisons, Alabama's and Mississippi's have issues with the pandemic, prisoners wanting to be released because they have pre-existing conditions and they fear for their life, then not being released and catching COVID-19, but nothing on quarantine zones. So if any listener has a suggestion on someone we can speak with when it comes to the pandemic, prisons, and what Rob, while high, called quarantine zones send your suggestions to chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com uh, i wanted to second that i've been i was looking after rob's email i was looking for good writing on prisons and COVID. so if anyone's listening i'm gonna keep looking too but if anyone's listening we i think would really like to talk about that on the show we got suggestions from kim on what was happening at cook county 
But uh, yeah, nothing on a more national basis, and that would be more interesting. Stay, so yeah, stay so tuned. Uh, working on that. Yeah. We also got an email from Edson who writes, Hi, Chuck and Alex. Love your show. Listen to it every morning before going to work as I do my 20-minute bike exercise routine. I listen to it at twice the speed. Your guests and your interviews with them are so informative. I really can't say enough about how great your show is. This is why I am a supporter and Patreon subscriber. You often mention that you are open to suggestions. Here are a couple I have read recently, which I have found excellent, and which I think you would have a really great interview with. Eric Loomis in his book, A History of America in Ten Strikes. I think that book came out in either 2018 or 2019. I'm pretty sure we reached out to Eric, but we didn't hear back. Uh, um, let's see. Uh, Edson writes that uh, it's a fascinating history of the states from the perspective of the working class uh, struggle to make any gains in the face of relentless, violent, and vicious opposition of the ruling class. It is also an exploration of how race is an even more important factor than class and the inability of the working class to come together to confront that ruling class. Absolutely fascinating. Neil Irvin Painter, he also suggests in his book, A History of White People, great read about how whiteness evolved over time in America in relation to class and a history of just how unbelievably ludicrous race science was and continues to be. Amazing read. That sounds really, really good, actually. And one that I am currently reading, uh, Edson says, about how decisions made by ordinary people in ordinary workplaces lead to absolutely monstrous outcomes. Also fascinating so far. It's huge, though. Volume 1 is almost 1,000 pages, and Volume 2, not out yet, is expected to be just as big. It's called... I, you, we, them, walking into the world of the desk killer by Dan Gretton. Ciao for now, Edson. Now, we, like I said, we had Ed, uh, Eric Loomis on the show, I think, back in the aughts, Edson. If we can find it, maybe we will play that during our Patreon podcast Friday, or maybe we'll play an old interview with Steve Call. We couldn't find it, though, as he came up yesterday during our talk, or a couple days ago, during our talk with uh, Bob Vitalis on the Rock War. Uh, not being in blood for oil as one of uh, the people, you know, Steve Call was one of the people who got the Iraq war correct and his criticism was actually absolutely spot on. So maybe we'll share that interview. But thanks for the suggestions, Edson. Byron emailed about a sticker that I mentioned that was sent and uh, was sent to us in the mail. And I completely forgot what the sticker meant. But remi- Byron reminds us, dearest Chuck, someone has probably already told ye. However, the sticker you received that reads, Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't is an excellent YouTube channel, features an angry Chicago boy who has taught himself a lot of botany and geology. Good stuff. Enjoy the sticker. I'm jealous. Construction is hell. It breaks my mind and body. And I love it. Too long in hell, I think. The heat is cozy now. Sincerely, Byron. That's the problem, isn't it, Byron? We all get a little too cozy in hell. And if anybody wants to send us anything, you can send us stuff to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's listener feedback, and there's still plenty more piled up in the office. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio, send a message to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. That's also all the places where you can answer 
this week's question from hell, which is, you look amazing, what's your secret? You look amazing, what's your secret? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support coming up when it comes to the pandemic. We are definitely not all in this together. And what is happening with the people in the Amazon region is a case in point. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. This week, Jeff waits for just the right moment the planet's on fire so yes this is hell last year the amazon was on fire and the world was shocked and appalled by the environmental destruction especially in light of climate change and the amazon being the so-called lungs of the world now the people of the amazon are under increasing threats not only from fires but extractive industries targeting resources on indigenous land with the industry actually increasing their work during the pandemic which raises the likelihood of contact and spreading of covid 19 to the people of the amazon whose immune systems are not prepared but what the pandemic does reveal is the importance of indigenous politics within the amazon region here to help us understand what is happening right now and the Amazon's indigenous politics. Sylvia Cifuentes wrote the scienceandsociety.org article, Territory, Autonomy and Rights, Indigenous Politics and COVID-19 in the Amazon Basin. Welcome to This Is Hell. Sylvia? Uh, Good morning. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very glad to talk to you. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm really glad that we're having you on the air. Let's start with something that's a little bit later in your article. But you write that not only has deforestation increased during the pandemic, but the quarantine and the pandemic have been an opportunity for armed miners and loggers to forcibly enter the territories of the indigenous or for states to justify more widespread extractivism. Why is a time when we are supposed to be isolating leading to a time of extractivism, having more contact and expanding into an area where people are and have traditionally tried to isolate themselves. Why is a time of staying at home conducive to extractivist industries expanding in the Amazon? Mm -hmm. Well, um, what is going on in uh, several of the Amazon countries, uh, for example, Ecuador, is that, well, as you have seen in the U.S., um, industries are having a very hard time, growth is slowing, and a lot of people are losing their jobs. So governments, for example, are taking this as an opportunity to say, uh, we need to expand extractivism, we need to do more mining, to um, have more resources to address the pandemic, to give more employment. And of course, this is not something, uh, the causality is not uh, direct, uh, not uh, because there's more mining, that doesn't mean that there's going to be um, more employment or that the resources are going to be directed at addressing the pandemic directly. But it is definitely um, an excuse that governments use to uh, to extract more from the Amazon. That happens in the case of Ecuador. And in the case of other countries, um, I think there's also a... Um, an excuse, and also since um, so much of the attention of what governments are doing and what people are doing is directed to the pandemic, um, there's no, for example, monitoring of what's going on in the Amazon. Um, well, in Brazil, um, since Bolsonaro took office, uh, there has been like a lot of 
less attention put in um, in deforestation. Deforestation has increased, as you probably have seen, uh, in the last few years. So this is um, another uh, way uh, in which uh, people are um, are entering the territories because there's not so much attention in what's going on in in the Amazon, and this is also why uh, indigenous organizations have been trying to um, have been trying to call the world for more attention to to what's going on. You quote how Gregorio Diaz Mirabal, the general coordinator of an organization called Coordinator of Indigenous Organizations of the Amazon Basin, uh, COICA, C-O-I-C-A, commonly refers to the spread of COVID-19 in Amazonian indigenous communities like this. We are facing a new genocide. A genocide is a deliberate killing of an ethnic group or nation. How are indigenous deaths due to COVID-19 Intentional. How can you intentionally target the indigenous or anybody with COVID nineteen? Well, what leaders refer when uh, refer to when uh, saying these quotes, um, I think uh, they refer to the abandonment that uh, they feel that governments have had towards uh, indigenous communities and to the Amazon in general for years. So there's. Uh, whereas, as we were talking about, um, uh, resources have been extracted from the Amazon, like oil and mining, especially in Brazil also, uh, there are soy plantations. While a lot of resources are taken from there, um, not much of those resources are back in the Amazon. So, um, as I also mentioned in the article, um, the health systems in the Amazon, the health services, um, are really like unavailable there and unavailable especially for indigenous peoples who sometimes live very far away from any uh, type of specialized medical attention that they could need for uh, to like address COVID-19. So uh, this is why they mentioned um, that this is a new genocide because uh, because of their culture and um, well, like cultural uh, or, yeah, <laughs> because of colonialism and racism, they have been left behind for years. Uh, this is the argument. And because of that abandonment today, it's been like harder to address the pandemic in indigenous territories in the Amazon. Again, I just want to make a real quick correction. Uh, Sylvia's article is at societyandspace.org. Again, it's titled Territory, Autonomy, and Rights, Indigenous Politics, and COVID-19 in the Amazon Basin. You were just mentioning abandonment by uh, the state uh, by, mm-hmm. of the indigenous people. How difficult is that balance between being abandoned by the state and wanting to be isolated from the state. How difficult is that balance to achieve for the indigenous communities? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think there's like a broad range of uh, position in, positions in this regard. Like autonomy also means different things depending on the indigenous organization or on the indigenous uh, community that we are talking about. Um, but in general, uh, for example, this is something I mentioned too. Um, there are a lot of calls uh, from most indigenous uh, communities and organizations for uh, intercultural health, for example. 
and uh, there's like these uh, calls for a, like more mixed systems between different types of um, of conceptions of what health is and how to uh, how to achieve health and uh, what are the different like techniques and medicines that are used in this. So I think there's um, always like um, in this case, at least in the case of health, uh, there's always um, organizations are always trying to find a balance between having uh, some services for like a last uh, resource, like uh, a lot of uh, leaders that I've heard at least um, acknowledge that there are some uh, things that uh, communities will need, uh, for example, yeah, emergency services, ICUs, um, and those should be provided by the state, especially because, as I mentioned, the state is taking resources from from the Amazon and from indigenous communities. So I think that's um, a little bit of the balance. Like uh, there's there are these calls for cultures uh, to be recognized and traditional forms of, of medicine. Uh, and at the same time, there are uh, certain things that maybe these practices cannot address. And in that case, uh, the state should come forward in that. And something that is also important is that there are many cities in the Amazon uh, with also mestizo populations, and um, and so like there should be like um, um, an infrastructure, a health infrastructure for all of that population um, as well. So I think there's there's where the balance lies. I mean, there should be autonomy for. Um, cultures to be expressed and uh, forms different forms of medicine to be practiced but also for very like emergency and like very uh, stream cases there should also be like an infrastructure in which they can rely on far too often the problem that is often made is that politics are monolithic that for instance black politics are monolithic we had cedric johnson on here a historian who pointed out obviously black politics are not monolithic it sounds mm-hmm. like when you're describing it that amazonian indigenous politics are also not monolithic to what extent do you think amazonian indigenous politics has become more organized together has become more as as bound bound itself together with other different types of politics with all the varied politics in the amazon is is the pandemic bringing the bringing amazon politics which are not monolithic is it bringing them in any way together yes um i do think so that the pandemic is bringing them together but uh, there are also like important processes of bringing different organizations and communities uh, together since, uh, for example, the birth of, of COICA, which is the coordinator of indigenous organizations in the Amazon Basin, as you mentioned, and it brings together different organizations uh, of the nine Amazon countries. So there are definitely, and also like my overall doctoral work uh, refers to this, but uh, even though... Uh, organizations are very emphatic in the fact that uh, well there are over like 5,000 5, communities and 400 different uh, peoples or ethnic groups across the Amazon and of course cultures are very different and um, 
ways, worldviews are also very different, then there are some um, issues that are common to um, to indigenous peoples in the Amazon, and these are things that bring them together um, and to fight together, and that that's one of the uh, bases of COICA and in its member organizations across the nine Amazon uh, basin countries. So, for example, um, the defense of the territory, which is something that I mentioned also in the article, is something that brings them all together, like a particular view, at least from the uh, leaders that I have talked to, um, a view of the territories as a place that gives life and that um, really brings together different um, elements and that makes uh, life and cultures also um, possible and also to persist. And so the defense of the territories is one, and that is linked with um, struggle against um, extractivism in its different forms, in monocultures, um, uh, mining and oil extraction and so on. And uh, as I was mentioning, also intercultural health, intercultural education, these uh, have been things that have brought uh, indigenous organizations together for some years now. COICA is uh, 36 years old, I think, this year. And um, also, I think even like the national organizations have been doing this work of uh, trying to uh, speak um, speak uh, from um, about uh, the different communities inside a, inside a country. And this is... Uh, this is sometimes very difficult. There are many different uh, positions and nuances on how to address uh, the different issues that uh, indigenous communities are facing. Uh, so there's a lot of negotiation and sometimes there are also some conflicts, but there's definitely this will to, to try to work together even before the pandemic. And now that the pandemic uh, is here, there has also been just a move to towards like trying to address uh, the pandemic first and to really get together and organize and find ways to to respond to it. And on territory, you write the dramatic impacts of the pandemic for indigenous peoples in the Amazon basin cannot be disconnected with broader impacts, i.e. ecological, cultural, political, than indigenous peoples and territories are currently experiencing. In the interviews of my broader research, all leaders express that territories represent nourishment, medicine, and spirituality, and are the space where indigenous peoples can fully practice their culture and life ways. They represent the possibility of perpetuating the vitality of indigenous cultures and even safeguarding human rights. So I was going to ask you how the indigenous view of territory may differ from the state's view of territory, but I guess the bigger question I wanted to know is, does the indigenous view of territory make attacks on their territory? Attacks on them, attacks on their culture, is expanding farther into and extracting more and more resources from the Amazon in and of itself an act of genocide when a people, a nation, views their territory in the way that the Amazon's indigenous do? Yes, um, I think definitely. Um, especially um, also in my work with, with indigenous women, there's a lot of um, talk or a lot of... Um, reference to like how the territory can also be 
conceived um, as the human body. So body and territory are two um, aspects that are very uh, linked uh, together. And also like violence to the territory is similar to violence to the body. So definitely um, so intervening in the territory and violence through extractivism is also uh, a way of uh, genocide. And also, uh, this is very linked, uh, also as I mentioned, to um, ethnocide, which is uh, sometimes is not about like physically killing uh, peoples, an ethnic group, but uh, killing culture. And this happens uh, in many different ways. Well, in, in the US, this would refer to like assimilation, um, and just, um, yeah, and all, extractivism also carries with it um, an ethnocide, a way of, of killing culture, that sometimes culture cannot exist in the same way when the territory is under threat. And I want to get to uh, the cultural aspect of this in a moment. But you also write on autonomy. You write... Autonomy has been enshrined as the right to self-determination and self-governance and legal instruments, including the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the Ecuadorian and Bolivian Constitutions. In the case of Amazonian indigenous organizations, autonomy represents the possibility for them to define their own destiny, direct their own socio-cultural lives and, and the rhythm of transformation. How might that kind of auto autonomy affect the state and its extractive industries? Can this be a challenge, a threat to state power? Is the state opposed to indigenous autonomy simply because of its impact on the economy? Is, indigenous, economy, is indigenous autonomy bad for the economy and therefore a threat to the state? Well, again, here there are like many different views on what exactly um, represent like a like an, a, a different type of of development and well-being um, in indigenous territories. But uh, some of the authors that I have quoted here, also for example, Ortiz wrote more write more extensively about autonomy, uh, saying that, for example, even if the constitutions mention uh, that autonomy and self-determination is something that the states should um, should try to achieve. There haven't been many actions to actually um, implement this autonomy or uh, to make autonomy possible for indigenous uh, communities and organizations in the Amazon. So there's a, there's definitely some uh, conflict there. Um, states. Um, well, I cannot show you on that right now, but um, states have, uh, in, in Ecuador, for example, have uh, made concessions uh, for oil extraction in most of the Amazon uh, in Ecuador, in most, and this overlaps directly with indigenous territories. And there are uh, important organizations in the Amazon that are directly contesting this. Um, not only through protests, but also by like suing the state, for example, um, because there the state hasn't gone through the um, proper uh, consultation processes. Some other communities just say uh, we don't want to be consulted because we have decided that we do not want uh, oil extraction in our territory, and this, of course, directly threatens um, the idea of development that 
uh, governments pursue, even if sometimes uh, the constitutions or uh, in Ecuador there was this idea of open vivir. Uh, that was um, like that was taken from uh, indigenous uh, worldviews and uh, supposedly applied to the government, but that didn't really happen. There were a lot of um, contradictions in there, and still, like um, most countries in the Amazon, are based on an extractive mode of development. So there are definitely um, contradi contradictions there um, and conflicts also. Um, and at the same time, uh, indigenous communities are trying to um, come up with their own um, life plans, uh, which is what they're called, like uh, different um, ways of uh, like writing down uh, what a good life would be uh, for each of the communities. And yes, sometimes uh, there can be synergies. Uh, some organizations find that with what the government does, but sometimes there's uh, definitely like a lot of a lot of conflict. And yeah, just based on the different ways in which uh, development or well-being or a good life is conceived by these different parties. If contact is a way to build immunity against the virus, a potential way to help in actual physical survival, how much of a threat is contact to cultural survival? Because you write, in addition to the physical risks, COVID-19 represents a significant threat to cultural survival, particularly because of the age group that it impacts the most. That is the elders okay. who pass down the knowledge. While politicians in other parts of the world have seen COVID-19's impact on the elderly as a reason not to take strong actions in the Amazon. This is a reason for special concern and immediate action. In indigenous communities, elders are spiritual guides. They represent the people's memory and embody their knowledge. So what happens to a society when the, per the people survive, but the culture does not, or at least is in tatters without its memory? Um, well, I think this has been going on ever since uh, colonial times in in South America. Um, there are, as I was mentioning also, there are different types of, of impacts, uh, not only from extractive economies, but also from attempts to assimilate the populations uh, in the Amazon and where often happens and what has happened histori historically is that some groups um, lose their their memory, their knowledges and just like um, stop identifying as indigenous. Um, and also, um, yes, and also this, this threatens a lot of, of knowledge that uh, can be useful, for example, to respond to pandemics in the future and knowledge. Uh, and this is also that COICA has been very active uh, to acknowledge like recently that um, a lot of the knowledge that we need to face climate change uh, exists in the Amazon, in the communities. So also these attempts at like cultural assimilation at erasing cultures just threatens um, all of these different uh, knowledges that communities have and that elders have.
So does the pandemic then reveal to us or should it reveal to us, and it definitely has revealed to the indigenous people of the Amazon region, does it reveal that colonization has never stopped, that not only are we suffering from past colonization, but we continue to suffer from the current and ongoing colonization that is an extension of historic colonizing and, like I said, has just never stopped? Yes, definitely. Um, that's also something that a lot of the literature concerning autonomy tries to get at. Um, also, like the the way that South America is organized right now, and that influences politics and also well health and cultural survival and so on, uh, is defined by how states are are organized. So we have. Um, a model of nation states that was uh, imported or imposed from from Europe is like the Westphalian system uh, of nation states was created in Europe and just like brought to the whole the rest of the world. So these uh, conditions um, a lot of things the nation states and uh, well it for example also divides uh, some ethnic groups that. Um, that have been cohesive, it divides it and like puts a frontier and cut across um, indigenous territories that were conceived as a as a single thing before. It also like establishes uh, limits uh, that are kind of artificial for uh, indigenous peoples and territories because, uh, for example, sacred sites of one in, uh, indigenous group can be in places that the state does not recognize as uh, lands that belong to a specific uh, indigenous group. So there are many ways in which um, colonization, for example, um, represented in nation states or represented in um, just like uh, Western medicine and uh, also Western education or like the national education in most South American countries is also created um, following guidelines for Europe or for example, world history is European history in countries such as Ecuador. So uh, colonization, I think it's it's very much there. It hasn't uh, stopped. And that's why, um, well, these organizations and also scholar activists who talk about uh, decolonization and anti-colonization are trying to contest um, all of these different aspects of colonization in in knowledge, in health, education, uh, in politics, and so on. We have been speaking with Silvia Cifuentes. I still have one more question for you, Silvia. Silvia wrote the societyandspace.org article, societyandspace.org article, Territory, Autonomy, and Rights, Indigenous Politics, and COVID-19 in the Amazon Basin. And even though this is just one article and we have been speaking with Sylvia for the past half hour, we have only got to the surface of this article. There is so much more to this than what we've even mentioned on the show. So I really want to make certain that all of our listeners go check out your writing. Again, it's Territory, Autonomy, and Rights, Indigenous Politics, and COVID-19 in the Amazon Basin. You can find it at societyandspace.org, and we have a direct link at our website, thisishell.com. One of the things that you talk about in your article 
is neoliberalism and the idea of individual rights and collective rights. Sylvia, the last question that we ask each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience <laughs> is going to hate your response, and uh, you might hate to answer this because it's going to be kind of a, it's a little bit difficult and complicated, but you write that the pandemic uh, portrays an approach that can encompass rather than separate individual and collective rights. How does this kind of, how do these indigenous politics encompass both individual and collective rights? Uh, How can the two coexist? Can we overcome whatever shortcomings and problems there are of neoliberalism by having an approach that encompasses rather than separates collectivism, collective rights and individual rights? I don't think uh, we can overcome the problems of neoliberalism. Um, I think that there are some rights uh, from the doctrine of human rights that um, that indigenous organizations don't find uh, problematic. And also, as I mentioned in the article, um, individual rights have uh, have recently become like very important uh, to defend for the organizations because of the threats that um, that indigenous uh, leaders and land defenders are having to their lives. So that's why uh, human rights is uh, getting some, um, some relevance in indigenous politics. And also, of course, because there are some organizations that support uh, human rights directly. So these are, as I was explaining, like threats to individual uh, lives. But these threats to individual lives are also connected to the collective. They are connected to defending the territory. So uh, this um, wholeness, this um, space, and this uh, possibility of uh, of living of indigenous people and practicing uh, their cultures. Uh, so even though it's a threat to the individual person, it's also a threat to to the territory and also to uh, the possibility to live uh, collectively in in the territory, in communities and so on, and with these uh, particular types of um, livelihoods and life ways and cultures. Uh, so that's what I meant with, um, with this... Uh, politics in the Amazon, uh, trying to um, to like embrace both types of rights. I think ultimately they still refer to um, collective rights, but again, like these individual lives are threatened by neoliberalism, by um, or capitalism more deeply by the and need by capitalist states to extract from the territories. And uh, from the neoliberal, uh, neoliberalism, um, the possibilities that uh, companies have to extract in these uh, like remote places uh, because of uh, neoliberal policies that have allowed for um, companies to to globalize and to have action um, across the globe. So I think this view, um, even though they do refer to individual rights, that is not like related to to neoliberalism. Um, 
in fact, is also opposing to neoliberalism and capitalism, I would say. Sylvia, thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, again, the article is Territory, Autonomy, and Rights, Indigenous Politics and COVID-19 in the Amazon Basin, and you can find it at societyandspace.org or go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on the link right there. Sylvia, I've really enjoyed our conversation this morning. Thank you so much, and enjoy your upcoming weekend. Thank you very much for having me. It's been of course. a pleasure. Thank you. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon. Again, patreon.com slash thisishell. And get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and is podcast at the same place shortly after every Friday morning this week on Patreon. Still haven't decided which uh, classic interview that is currently unavailable online we will be sharing. We're looking for, I think we interviewed Steve Call in the past, and uh, Bob Vitalis talked about how he had uh, this criticism about the Iraq war spot on, so we're going to look for Steve's interview when he was on our show, but haven't found it yet. Uh, we had a listener ask us uh, if there are any books on the topic of the 2008 financial crisis and Obama's response actually leading to a Trump presidency. Someone suggested the new Paul Street book, so maybe we'll be playing an old Paul Street interview. Or maybe Eric Loomis, as another listener suggested. We have Eric back on the show, so one of those maybe. Who knows? Not too sure which one we'll be sharing on tomorrow's Patreon podcast, but I will be doing a thought exercise, and I'm betting it's a thought exercise we've all been doing, or at least started before the thought was so frightening you couldn't keep thinking about it because it was so damn scary. And that thought exercise is, so what happens if President Trump is reelected in November? What does that mean for the next four years? And what does it mean for the Democratic Party going in the 2024 presidential election? And what happens if Joe Biden wins? How will a contested election play out? As you know, Trump is such a sore loser, he will never accept his defeat. How will Trump tell his minions to act? There's a lot of horrific possibilities come Election Day in November and the vote counting that follows. And I will be considering as many of the terrifying scenarios as possible and no, I have not yet found one potentially good outcome that may occur on Election Day. There isn't one. There's not one. Everything will get worse after Election Day, and it doesn't matter who's going to be elected. But you can only hear whatever classic interview we will be playing, and my depressing dive head first into the shallow end of the pool of electoral politics by subscribing to our Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and is podcast immediately after at patreon.com slash thisishell. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorton will be delivering a moment of truth. This week, Jeff waits for ju just the right moment. This week's question from hell is, you look amazing, what's your secret? You look amazing, what's your secret? Person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which you can find out right find right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answers in now because we will be announcing the winner of that gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap immediately after Jeff delivers the, mo mo uh, the moment of truth. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question mail? Oh, yeah, I've got a bunch. This week's question mail is, you look amazing. What's your secret? Lisa MP says weed, chocolate, and beer. <laughs> if that worked, I'd look amazing. <laughs> uh, Braden S says, I'm not real. None of this is real. You're programmed to believe I'm a smoking babe, but we're both mostly empty space. Also, I stay hydrated. Can I distract you for a second? What is your favorite chocolate? Like... 
uh, Cadbury Top Deck, if we're being very specific. Oh, really? I haven't yeah, had that one. It's hard to find. Okay. Uh, it's a milk chocolate, or it's a white chocolate top of milk chocolate. If top I, deck. Yeah, and while we're begging people to send us things, if there's any UK <laughs> listeners who can send me some premium Cadbury top deck, I'd appreciate it. Okay. Also, Gorilla G says, oh gosh, no, it's just this revolting hellscape surrounding us in every direction lets me stand out a bit, it's all. But thanks, you too. <laughs> Rob H says, thank you. Dave W says, wait a minute, you're blind. How the F do you know how I look? <laughs> I can hear it from here. You look amazing. What's your secret? Uh, Burchett P says, my favorite makeup company, Gender Reveal, just put out this new product called Smoky Eye. I really like that. Jack B says, lack of sleep and weed. <laughs> Mike C says, aw shucks. Kim, <laughs> Kim G says, chickpeas. You look amazing. What's your secret? Uh, Ken Merley H says, my secret is some weird crap. I am a Latin boy that also looks weird, and some people don't know how I uh, read, write, talk, and understand the universal language in the world. I'll be waiting for my reward. <laughs> Joanne C says, really? I look amazing? You must be broke, blind, and toothless. <laughs> As gap tooth, by the way, not toothless. Yeah, exactly. uh, give, well, us, yeah, give, us, give us a while. Yeah, exactly. Uh, via Twitter, email, DMs, all that stuff. Neil C says, running from the police. <laughs> That's just great. Flying Needle says, why, thank you. I sniff Biden's hair every chance I get. I have no idea where it came from, but that crap is the fountain of youth. <laughs> Cosmo says, bacon fat. Ye Hoax says, what's my secret? Drinking eight to 10 glasses of water a day, sleeping at least eight hours a night, and logging off from all the social media sites like Twitter that are ruining so many things in the world to the point it gets nicknamed the hell site. Also moisturizing. <laughs> you look amazing. What's your secret? T. Lance says, floating on a cloud of wealth and drinking deeply of the schadenfreude from those suffering below me. Oh, that's delicious. Uh, Adeline W. says, driving through a car wash and screaming with abandon leaves a streak-free shine in my eye. <laughs> Adam B. says, our answer Frank Luntz and asked him that same question. <laughs> Apparently, though, his sarcasm detector is operating at a higher level than his conscience. Nate M. says, Chuck, turn on your monitor. Nosrefage2033 <laughs> says, hope and prayers. And our friends hypocrite reader say, the mandate of heaven. Why am I supposed to turn on my monitor? Do you follow that one? Uh, maybe he's staring at you. <laughs> maybe that's the case. Special thanks. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question, Mel, in following Jeff. Special thanks to Leah R., for going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We truly appreciate you showing your support, Leah, for completely listener-supported This Is Hell. We have no conflicts of interest because our only interest is you. So thanks, Leah R., for showing your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and checking out all the ways you can help, including subscribing at Patreon, getting any of our merch, or just making a donation. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. All in good time. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. As founding and sole member of the Socialist Leisure Party, I'm always looking for a way out of working at dreary jobs or having to perform irksome tasks. Unfortunately, I have a work ethic, though not much of one. I have trained myself by now in the third trimester of my life to actually do a job when I have one. I discovered long ago that time passes more quickly when you're engaged in an activity rather than avoiding one, but it's taken me some time to actually put it into practice. 
And then the pandemic comes along, and I'm pretty much confined to quarters, and all that great self-motivating attitude goes out the window. I'm predisposed to staying away from people anyway, even on the best of days, even when I'm doing something I feel is wonderful on stage with a group of people I'm energized working with. So I easily slipped into the habit of cringing away from the fetid breath of my fellow denizens of this neighborhood in the city, county, state, nation, and world. And then the protest started. I have a probationary sentence from the Burbank Superior Court that prohibits me from having any run-ins with the law, so joining in with the current historic uprising is out for now. Then the Nazis got involved, but I'm prohibited from street fighting due to physical limitations I won't go into. Then came the fires, and I happen to suffer from flammable off-gassing, so I can't pitch in. Hurricanes blow, polluters are liberated, the final Norquistian nails being hammered into democracy's coffin as an election destined to be followed by some form of major civil conflict grows ever nearer. And on top of all this, I have hypertension, a bruised kidney, bipolar disorder, male pattern baldness, shortness of stature and temper, and fear of day-walking vampires, all of which is conducive to hiding from everything and gradually sliding into Miss Havisham-style decay. So, how you guys doing? That's what I say to the group of coffee clubbers on Zoom every other day, and they all seem to be muddling along okay. The elderly socialist couple in New Zealand assures us that if we can make it to their farm, we'll all have a place to stay. The two weeks just after David Graeber died, I felt I'd accomplished a good deal. I encapsulated the case for abolishing money with the Rotten Egg Manifesto, and the logical rationale for believing the masses would ultimately triumph in our struggle against material oppression, in my piece, Nothing to Lose. And I felt really good. I thought to myself, well, I'm convinced. It's all settled. Now we can move forwards towards our grand and glorious revolution with the certainty that our cause is logically sound, economically just, and destined to succeed. Yet, it's been slowly dawning on me since then that the rest of the world does not agree. And on realizing thus, I was dumbfounded. I was flabbergasted. Aren't these people relieved to have the burden of commodity fetishization lifted? Doesn't it mean anything to them that the spell of arbitrarily assigned tokens of exchange has been broken? Aren't they ready to charge onto the battlefield now that the weapons of oppression and the false narratives of shortage and austerity have been dispelled? Are they fucking stupid or what? I go into the only public square available to me, social media, and I'm bombarded by a cacophony of disorganized opinions, half-assed or entirely crap analyses, self-destructive proposals for action, name-calling, douchery, delusional predictions, propagandistic parrotings, and lunatic statements of purported fact based on foundations no stronger than wet balsa wood and soggy pizza crust. People are still arguing about the colors of things, for crying out loud. I'm trying to turn my Twitter timeline into only depressed nihilists, because at least they don't propose solutions, so they'll never propose anything that conflicts with mine. It demonstrates two things to me. One, I don't have any influence, which is hardly a surprise, and all for the best, if you ask my parents. And two, 
People are easily distracted. They're distracted by sports and movies and TV shows. They're distracted by big butts and washboard abs and cocktails, cheeses, what you can put pineapple on, getting mad at James Woods and J.K. Rowling. There's just too much stuff. It seems like there's 3,000 new musical groups a day. Who the hell is Haim? Why can't people just listen to the music we already have? What's it going to take to get the people focused? But then, as is my habit, my proclivity, my inclination, I had a mild-ass epiphany. Eventually, all the distractions, including food, water, and air, will be destroyed or stolen by the owners, and all the distractions will have withered away. The only thing left to distract us will be our misery, and when that happens, it'll be easy to focus on changing things for the better. It might be too late to do anything about our problems, but at least they'll have dwindled to an intellectually manageable handful. At least we'll see clearly what the problem is. Guess you can't ask for more than that. There's always the possibility we'll come to our senses before then, but if we don't, at least I know we'll eventually get there. That's a bit of a mood enhancer. Every silver lining has a bright side, and we should look on it. Or I should. See, that's all it takes, just dwelling on your grievances until you think your way to a slightly happier condition. Now I'm fit as a fat fiddle and ready to take on the business of running the Socialist Leisure Party, which requires that I be relaxed and at ease. It takes all the power I can muster to allow the deadline for getting the newsletter out to gently pass, not to chase it in a panic like a bus, but to let it go. Just like that horrible song from Frozen, my friend's kid sings in the background of our Zoom salons. But never mind. Easy does it. Life isn't permanent. No need to panic. All in good time. To everything. Turn, 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 etc. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. You're on probation? <laughs> you kind of. <laughs> You want to share what for? Uh, it it it, it, invo- it involves a, a policeman who felt he had been assaulted. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very nice workaround you have there. Yeah. I uh, was uh, I have a record because of yeah, a policeman was very upset about the way that I treated the uh, police station. So. Yeah. yeah, well, I wish I had been in the police station. I probably wouldn't have gotten in trouble. Um, <laughs> I went there voluntarily, which was stupid. <laughs> yeah, never do that. Never do that. Um, Chuck, I had a few corrections to make about the protocols of the elders of Zion. The, the protocols of the elders of Zion, they're just mask wearing and social distancing, right? <laughs> I don't know what they're up to now. But uh, <laughs> the document itself was not published by the Nazis or created by the Nazis. It was... Uh, it was like published in 1903 by the Russians in Russian. Oh, the, uh, uh, this Greg Stanton was saying that the people who uh, created it were people who were fascists and were the precursors to what would become Nazism. Well, I mean, only in the sense that all European anti-Semitism was right. a precursor to Nazism. Right, right. Um, but it's really weird because it's based on uh, a lot of the, a lot of it was based on a play. That was written in like the 1860s. Uh, about... I was so hoping you were going to say it's based on Waiting for Godot. <laughs> it almost is. It's it's two characters in hell. It's Machiavelli and Montesquieu having an argument in hell. Is it two acts as well? Oh, no, I think it's. You know what? I don't know. But uh, 
Can you? Really, I wanted to see you do a performance of this, by the way. Uh, no one wants to see this performance. <laughs> okay. so a bunch of yakking. But, you know, there's a lot of it in my play Strauss at Midnight. Oh, okay. Which was... Uh, Fantastic. But uh, another thing is I don't think QAnon is using the actual document and just changing Jews to something else. I think the guy's probably, like, making a general statement yeah. that QAnon's theory is like the Protocols of the Elders design in that it's like a poison pen letter. It's a false, crazy... Yeah, the article the article that he wrote goes into greater detail. Obviously, when he was on CNN, he was just making quick summary points, you know. But you know what's really cool? <laughs> As a Jew, I find this very cool. <laughs> is that QAnon is open to Jews, which is really great. Oh, it's open to everybody. <laughs> they they really want people to join by saying, "Save the children. <laughs> They're being raped by Alec Baldwin." I mean, no every of course you're going to save the children from Alec Baldwin. Who wants that fat ass slobbering <laughs> over your children? Um, but uh, all the dial, all the protocols are all taken from the dialogue from Machiavelli's part of the dialogue. So it's all these things he's telling about how you can thwart republics and how you take over a, a place where people have a, a say in their government and turn them into the subjects of a, a fascist dictatorship. It was written by a, a guy who was, it was really a satire against Napoleon III, <laughs> who was a dictator of France. Yeah, there's actually a really, I uh, studied Napoleon III in undergraduate history classes. There's actually mm. a really great uh, biography of him, and I, miss, I can't remember the author's name. The other thing I was thinking about when you were uh, reading your moment of truth is yeah. I absolutely love that the word Phony comes from epiphany. That is just one is of my- Is that true? Yes. That is one of my favorite, favorite things ever, every year wow. when the Catholic Church that celebrates the epiphany. <laughs> oh, hey, by the way, so last month, yeah. the, the FBI accidentally put out the Protocols of the Elders of Zion <laughs> without explanation. <laughs> On August 20th, they like, submit, like the, the Twitter account- uh, FBI vault of of research or something uh, to put put out the protocols of the elders of Zion, a link to them in PDF form, and then and some other stuff like FOIA stuff, uh, and then uh, didn't explain anything. And so a bunch of Jewish groups, including of course the ADL, got really pissed and said, "What the what the hell is going on? What are you doing? You know that this is anti-Semitic, right? You're the FBI." And they they apologized finally, but uh, and oh god, did you read this this guy's this guy who um, blamed BLM for assaulting his daughter? No, he's he's a he's a a lawyer. He's a uh, I believe he's a lawyer. He might even be a doctor. I don't know. He he put up a Twitter thing that says my daughter was was like assaulted by these black guys and they and you know by BLM and of course the cops said they couldn't really do anything because they were black and <laughs> no such thing happened nothing at all like that happened like some squeegee guys came and tried to clean their windshield and the and the daughter's boyfriend said hey knock it off and the guys were like pissed off but they eventually left and didn't touch them at all and uh, so eventually the guy apologized, but he says, I regret that my remarks were misinterpreted. 
god. Yeah. I think yeah, that's what yeah. Hitler was going to say right before they, uh, you know, stormed his bunker. I think it was, yeah, I just, he, I, my words were misinterpreted. I apologize. Yeah, you know, I, I was just, yeah, I was just being sarcastic. <laughs> all, right, all right, Jeffy. Until next week. Yes. Stay beautiful. Oh, I will. Live. So I'll stay amazing. <laughs> there you go. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is you look amazing. What's your secret? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins the new gray on black. This is hell. Trucker's cap. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we got to have it right now because we're about to announce this week's win. Winner of the question from hell and our gray on black. This is Hell Trucker's Cap, which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, please share with us the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question from this hell. This week's question from hell is You look amazing. What's your secret? A.T. Moore says, I vote. Just makes you feel alive knowing you are defending the greatest democracy money can buy, doesn't it? Wow. That and honey cane sugar facial rubs. Okay. Nick A says, self-care and self-diagnosis. <laughs> Rayo says, as Perry Cuomo said, I'm old and I drink a lot. Uh, wow, no wonder he sang so slowly and sleepily. Brian H. posted a link to a Nina Simone song uh, called I Ain't Got No, I Ain't Got No, I Ain't Got Life. That's a great song. Uh, but I'm not going to be attempting to sing that Nina Simone song. No. Uh, Eva M. says, maybe it's me. Maybe it's methamphetamine. <laughs> Pammy H says, my free black TIH trucker's cap. And finally, Peter Very J says, clever. carbuncle highlights. Ugh. Ugh. All right. I liked, uh, let's see, the answers I liked the most were Yahok saying, what's my secret? Drinking eight to ten glasses of water a day, sleep at least eight hours a night, logging off from all the social media sites like Twitter and, that are ruining so many things in the world to the point it gets nicknamed the hell site. Also moisturizing. I like that one. I like Neil saying running from police. Joanne saying, really, I look amazing. You must be broke, blind, and toothless. <laughs> Birchett saying, my favorite makeup company, Gender Reveal, just put out this new product called Smoky Eye. I really like that. Chase saying, staring deeply and longingly into the void for hours on end really does wonders for the complexion. Jack saying, expediting entropy. <laughs> Andrea saying, I'm dead inside. Greg saying, I shouldn't say it publicly, but you know how Hillary is abducting children and drinking their blood? Well, it works fabulously. Pete saying, self-loathing. You got any suggestions for your favorite answer to this week's question from Al Alex? Uh, my was Andrea's, uh, I'm dead inside. <laughs> I'll, go with, I'll go with your judgment. No, I was going to go with that too. So, Andrea, you are the winner of this week's question from Al. You've won the new gray on black. This is Hell Trucker's Cap, which everyone can get right now by going to thisishell.com when they click on support. My answer to this week's question from Al, you look amazing. What's your secret? What's my secret? Uh, it looks like QAnon is really based on the elder the protocols of the elders of Zion. That's all I got. Thanks, everyone, for sending in your answers this week. Alex, on Monday's show, it will be time for our quarterly review of what we have learned here on This Is Hell over the past three months. As Monday is the last day of summer, we will reconsider everything we have been taught by guests since late June. But, Alex, who will be on Monday's show? Do we know? Uh, don't know Monday, don't know Thursday yet. What about Tuesday and Wednesday? Okay, uh, Tuesday, we're going to have Christian Sorensen on to talk about his book, Understanding the War Industry, How America's Corporations Drive for Profit, Drives America's Endless Wars. 
And that's been getting really, really great. Yeah, reviews. excited to have that one on. Yeah. And then uh, Wednesday, uh, set your calendars because we're uh, we got a big deal West Coast guest uh, who we're changing a lot of things about the show too. So uh, Wednesday's show is going to air at two p.m. to accommodate a guest I've been trying to get since damn twenty seventeen, and I finally landed him. So Wednesday at two p.m., not ten a.m., two p.m. Uh, we'll be talking to Abram Lustgarden, who wrote the gigantic ProPublica pieces, Climate Change Will Force a New American Migration, and New Climate Map Shows Transform the United States. Uh, really excited about him, and we're accommodating his schedule. So uh, 2 p.m. on Wednesday. I'll probably just play something at 10 a.m. Uh, on Wednesday so you don't, people don't feel lost <laughs> tuning in. I'll play something old. Uh, but yeah, 2 p.m., tune in for uh, Abram Lustgarten to talk about his ProPublica work. I'm really excited about this. Like I've been emailing this guy since uh, I looked it up. I've been requesting, trying to get him on since 2017, so excited to finally make it work. And the article that he just posted at ProPublica apparently is going to be the cover story. I'm pretty sure the cover story in the New York Times Sunday Magazine this weekend. So if people wanted to see the article there, they can see it as well. I think he actually worked with the New York Times in make, in uh, creating that article. Uh, yeah, he does a lot of stuff with, uh, with yeah. both publications. Uh, and then on Thursday, of course, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering the moment of truth and we'll have somebody else on. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com with Alex revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is olives because they're salty and salty foods apparently help cure a hangover. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including Helena Paul, who wrote the article, Looking Beyond the Pandemic, Agroecology, and the Need to Rethink Our Food System, which you can find at radicalecologicaldemocracy.org. Who knew that URL would be available? Political science scholar Robert Vitalis also joined us this week. He's author of Oil Craft, The Myths of Scarcity and Security That Hunt U.S. Foreign Policy. Geography scholar Dr. Deborah Potts was on our show yesterday. She's author of Broken Cities, Inside the Global Housing Crisis, and I found that conversation fascinating. Finally, thanks to today's guest, Sylvia Cifuentes, who wrote the what is it again? Space and society, society and society and space, society and space dot org article, territory, autonomy and rights, indigenous politics and COVID-19 in the Amazon basin. We are looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Alex has done nearly every day for several years now, as Richard has, as Theron has, as many people have on our show, email me at Chuck at This Is Hell dot com. Chuck at This Is Hell dot com with Alex's kid getting older and in-person schooling impossible during the pandemic. He needs to devote more time to child care, all of which means we are looking for new volunteers to run the board and interact with me on air. The uh, position does come with a modest stipend to keep, so keep that in mind as well. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from one to two, three, four, even all five days every week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge. 2251 West Devon here in Chicago with shows beginning at 10 a.m. every morning. However, we are very flexible and if you can do it uh, weekly or a couple times a month, we can work with your schedule. This is our this is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at com. chuck at com, And we're going to be asking for some additional contribution from you, our listening audience, where if you are not living in the Chicago area, you will be able to help us out to contribute to the show remotely, but we'll be telling you about that in the coming weeks. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing, I don't know, we'll be playing an interview though, classic interview that we have not, uh, it is not currently available online, and I will be engaging in a thought exercise on the potential outcome of the November presidential election and the following vote in 2024, that is if there 
are any more elections after November. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning wet dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me a profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.